You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click donate. They're the ones who are privileged. They, 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 they live in, in, in privileged social locations and, and they have a degree of power in our society. It's, it's very convenient for this part of American Christianity to focus on an individual salvation that leaves social injustice untouched. And This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 286 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of love, compassion, taking action, and seeking justice. Our our title this week is Social Salvation, and our feature text is Matthew 21, 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. First, let me say it is good to be back. Two weekends ago, I was uh, presenting at a, a weekend retreat in Rehoboth, Delaware, and last weekend we were intending to get out a podcast episode, but we had some major technical difficulties, and that just didn't happen. So we are glad that those have been ironed out, and we are back this week. Uh, We've been getting a lot of questions over the past few weeks about our articles and our episodes on a more social reading of the Gospels. And again, I'm not saying that Jesus never addressed an individual's personal salvation in the stories of the Gospels, he does, but he also worked towards society's salvation too. And here in the West, we are shaped by a deeply individualistic culture, and and some Christian communities rarely address Jesus's social salvation, if ever. Uh, The form of Christianity that, that most people experience, it focuses heavily on a person's individual or personal salvation, and it leaves the idea of, of, of social salvation unspoken. And, and, and we must also, we have to be honest, many of those who lead this form of, of Christianity, um, they're the ones who are privileged. They, they, they live in, in, in privileged social locations, and, and they have a degree of power in our society. It's, it's very convenient for this part of American Christianity to focus on an individual salvation that leaves social injustice untouched and emphasizes attaining heaven after death rather than a, a, a more earthy or, or earthly focus of, of working for, for things now uh, to be on earth as they are in heaven, as, as uh, we find in Matthew, the prayer of Matthew 6.10. But, so, so where do we find uh, examples of Jesus working toward social salvation in the gospel stories? Well, the most familiar story is of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem and what we We've labeled today as Palm Sunday. And then the following is temple protest that that, that that following day. Both of these events, they were public demonstrations calling for social change. His entry into Jerusalem that day, it was in competition. It competed with Rome's entry into Jerusalem that was going on at the exact same time. And if you're unfamiliar with this history um, or this idea, I want to recommend to you chapter one of a book called The Last Week by Borg and Crossan. Um, They do a great job at giving you the background uh, on what was going on uh, 
with the 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 Jesus entry into Jerusalem on on Palm Sunday uh, and Jesus was protesting there Rome's vision for society, which was referred to as the Pax Romana. And then the following day, Jesus overturning the tables in the temple courtyard was an even more pointed social protest. And now I want to be clear as we talk about this part, though. Jesus's actions there in the temple and, and within the entire story, they must be understood within Judaism, not outside of Judaism and not against Judaism. Remember, Jesus was never a Christian. He was a Jew. And Jesus was not against Judaism, nor was Judaism against Jesus. Jesus's voice was one of many Jewish voices in his own society. And there was a spectrum of, of positions among the Essenes, uh, the Zealots, the Scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Each of these groups had an idea, or they had ideas and interpretations uh, about what it meant for, for Jewish society to live in faithfulness to Torah. And, 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 and Christianity grew out of an early group of Jewish Jesus followers who resonated with, with Jesus's vision for, for Jewish society. It, it was later when the Jesus movement became populated by, by more non-Jewish adherents and, and adherents from, from the upper classes of Gentile society that, that we see anti-Semitism entering the, the telling of the Jesus story. But originally, the Jesus story was not read this way, and that's an important point. Let, let me also say on the flip side, that the context that Jesus was in, uh, it was also not a, a, a uniquely Jewish story. It was not a uniquely Jewish concept or context. The, the dynamics and, and social tensions of, of that society, th those tensions happen in all societies, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. And when Jesus flipped the tables in, in, in the temple in Matthew 21, 12, at, at the beginning of his, 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 his final week there his, uh, in the Synoptic Gospel, he, he was protesting, um, uh, well, well, first, he was not protesting Judaism. Uh, far from it. He was protesting political oppression and exclusion in his society. He was protesting the economic exploitation of the vulnerable in his society. He was protesting the religious legitimization and complicity of the priests in the temple. His actions were not against the temple because it was uh, the Jewish temple. His actions were in solidarity with the Jewish poor in his Jewish society. And political oppression and exclusion or economic exploitation and, and the religious legitimization of all of those, those are not uniquely Jewish by any means. They are universal social evils that take place in all societies. And Christians especially shouldn't rush to, to point fingers at their Jewish neighbors in the story uh, because Christian, Christianity's history and Christianity's present uh, offer many examples of, of these social sins as well, the same dynamics happening in the story. And, and elite Christians who benefit uh, uh, from, from uh, uh, Christianity's history uh, of being complicit with, with social sins um, the elite could 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 have just easily just as easily and surely executed a prophet of the poor 
in their own day and time, and they have. Uh, Christian history is riddled with those kinds of stories. Rome executed Jesus because he threatened an unjust status quo, and people have been removed from society in one way or another in every generation when they've stood up to an unjust status quo. And Christians, too, have been complicit in upholding unjust status quo. So with this in mind, Here's one example, uh, one more example. We looked at the, the temple protest there, but, but there's one more example I want to look at this week of Jesus addressing social evils and not just mere personal or, or individual ones. And this is from Matthew 12, 9 through 14. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then when he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, so he stretched it out and and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now, again, that's Matthew 12, 9 through 14. Plotting to kill Jesus, to me, that seems like a pretty extreme response. If we only read the story as Jesus healing one individual with a shriveled hand, but if we read this story as Jesus attacking a socially unjust power structure, the structure itself, a religious interpretation that was foundational for a social evil that marginalized the vulnerable, as well as the authority of those who perpetuated this interpretive foundation, then their response of feeling threatened and feeling an immediate need to silence or remove Jesus that makes perfect sense. Speaking of the healing stories in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Ched Myers, he points out in his book, Say to This Mountain, Mark's Story of Discipleship. This is page 14. In contrast to Hellenistic literature in which miracle workers normally function to maintain the status quo, gospel healings challenge the ordering of power because Jesus seeks the root causes of why people are marginalized. There is no case of healing and exorcism in Mark that does not also raise a larger question of social oppression. So in the Jesus stories, when we see a Jesus who, who continually uh, took a stand with the marginalized sectors of society, um, that gives us a reason to, to, to stop and ponder uh, Jesus' social salvation. He, Jesus did this. He, he stood in solidarity with, with the marginalized. Even when, it's, when that stand, it pitted him against the more popular religious teachers and their authority. And I want to recommend a uh, a podcast, Solidarity with the Crucified Community, or I'll put a link to the e-site in this week's e-site, uh, this week's e-site as we've covered in the past. But, but, but this should give us some pause today when we encounter ways of interpreting our sacred texts that either side with religious institutional positions that harm others, or they give a, a sacred foundation for whether the opposite of, of, of inclusion, compassion, centering the vulnerable, and justice. We can choose how we interpret our sacred text. And one example 
people in Christianity today, there are multiple ways to interpret the biblical texts that have been applied to the LGBTQ community. LGBTQ youth who belong to non-accepting Christian families, they demonstrate a disproportionately higher rate of suicide, and it would be far better for these children to belong to non-Christian families that accept them than a Christian family who whose interpretive lens does them such harm. Another example, interpretations of the Bible are also used to harm women as well, and, and we're seeing this in the southern portions of the U.S. taking place right now. And, and, and another contrast that, that we need to address this week between personal salvation and social salvation is that personal salvation tends to focus one's attention on the afterlife, on gaining heaven. It's a pessimistic patience, kind of a fatalistic patience. We can't change the world, so let's focus on the one after this. Uh, It's a patience for how things are now and a hope for change that will only come at some point in in the distant future. And and I want you to notice in that context, I want you to to read again the story of Lazarus in in John's gospel about Jesus. Jesus rejects uh, the future focus. And in this story, he calls Martha to the present, to the now, not the later. When Jesus finally arrives uh, to Lazarus's tomb, he assures Martha that, that her brother will live again. And in John eleven twenty four, Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And here, Martha exemplifies uh, th- th- this far distant future hope. Sure, her brother, she'll see her brother again um, at what, th- what they believe would be a, a, a a resurrection. But Jesus contradicts her and calls her to focus her hope not on the future, uh, but but for change in the present. In, in the very next verse, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And individual salvation, again, it places a person's hope in the future, either at death or in Jesus's return to this earth. But social salvation says, says, no, I am the resurrection and the life now, today. Change can take place now. Another world is possible if we choose it now. Jesus taught that the meek will inherit the earth, not not a post-mortem heaven. And we find this in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 5. Private and personal salvation focuses on a future hope while leaving the the present's social structures largely uh, untouched. In, In Luke's gospel, we read the story of Zacchaeus, whose, whose personal transformation or salvation came as a result of his embracing Jesus's vision for uh, social salvation from the social evil of, of wealth disparity. And Jesus had, had been preaching a more distributively, distributively just vision for his society. And Jesus envisioned, remember, a, a society without disparity where everyone has enough and no one has too much while others are suffering and going uh, without. And in Luke, Jesus had called his followers in that context to sell their surplus possessions and, and give them to the poor. We find this in Luke 12, 18 and verse 33. And you can cross-reference that with, with the early church and how they practiced this in Acts 2, 44 through 45 and Acts 4, 33 through 34. But Zacchaeus, he embraces Jesus's vision and he states in Luke 19, 8, 
28, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. That's what he deemed was superfluous in his own life, his, his, his surplus. I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus responds in Luke 19, 9, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now, stop and, and ponder that word today. Some equate salvation in Christianity with eternal life. Well, Zacchaeus, he entered into what makes life eternal in the Gospels that day, Jesus said. He, he didn't enter into eternal life or life eternal at his death. He entered that day because eternal life, remember, eternal life is social. Societies can follow paths that will eventually bring about their own ruin and destruction or they can follow the path of life. And, and humanity as a species, we have to choose between these options as well. I'm reminded of Brock and Parker's insight into to how eternal life is defined in the Gospels. This is from their book, Saving Paradise, How Christianity Traded Love of This World for Crucifixion and Empire. This is page 29. The, Gospels define, the Gospel defines three dimensions of this eternal life. Knowing God, receiving the one sent by God to proclaim abundant life to all, and loving each other as he had loved them. Eternal life in all three meanings relates to how life is lived on earth. The concrete acts of care Jesus has shown his disciples are the key to eternal life. By following his example of love, the disciples enter eternal life now. Eternal life is much more than a hope for post-mortem life. It is an earthly existence grounded in ethical grace. That day, Zacchaeus embraced an offer from Jesus, but it wasn't an offer of, of post-mortem bliss. Zacchaeus embraced Jesus's social vision for societal change. He embraced Jesus's social gospel. And yes, Jesus engaged a person's personal salvation. Again, Zacchaeus was one person, but it's always in the context of that person embracing Jesus's social teachings. This means that when we divorce a person's private salvation from their, their larger participation in Jesus's vision <clears throat> for social salvation, uh, that's being unfaithful to the story. Jesus didn't change individual lives. He changed individual lives when they chose to participate in Jesus's challenge to the status quo and his call for social change. Remember Matthew 21 verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. This week, I want to make a special request to each of our listeners each of our weekly readers. Um, if you've been blessed by our work here at Renewed Heart Ministries, I want to take the opportunity this month to reach out to you and ask you to support our work. This is a, a time of the year when the need for your support is keenly felt by us, and, and, and as well, it's deeply appreciated too. And you can support our work by either clicking on the donate page on our website or, or by mailing your support to Renewed Heart Ministries, 
Keys, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. If you're getting this in an email, uh, you can just click on the donate button at the bottom of the email. But but you can make a one-time gift. Or also, I want to ask you to please consider becoming one of our continuing monthly sustainers. And you can do that by selecting the option to make your gift uh, reoccurring. And again, all amounts help regardless of the size. And I want to thank you in advance uh, for your support. We, we just simply could not exist nor continue our important work uh, without you. Last week, uh, when I was in Rehoboth, one of the responses of uh, one of the attendees, they came up to me afterwards and said, if we had more messages like this, the church would be a different place. Wherever you are today, cho- keep choosing to live in love. Choose compassion. Take action. Seek justice till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm